Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Imagine we talk like that. Hi. It's the Write or Die podcast, and we're here to tell you about all of our feelings and emotions. I'm Clarissa McOrtega. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm and I'm Caitlin Chokinski. <laughs> I couldn't think of another last name. <laughs> well, to you be know, fair, I had Clarissa McOrtega. That's my fake white lady name. So I can't. What's a good uh, fake white lady last name with Cho in it? Um, Chones. <laughs> Chones. Yeah, because Mick Ortega makes like no sense. So Chones yeah. should also be your ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. So how's how's the beginning of 2019 been uh, treating you so far? Actually, really well. Which is surprising because I really thought that it would turn 2019 and I would immediately melt into an anxiety puddle. That's but, not what happened because puddles, no. puddles can't host podcasts. Well, yet, <laughs> right? You know, things are always possible. If right. you're a puddle listening to this podcast, then I'm here to tell you that your dream of hosting a podcast one day can come true. Also, you can have your book signing in our podcast somehow, which is someone emailed us about having their book launch in our podcast. To be fair to the person, she was lovely, and it was not, it was sort of like a mass email, but my brain exploded for five whole minutes. Like, she wants to have an event in Ride or Die. How would that even be possible? How could we do that? Like a meta, like kind of a thought event where we all just like are with each other in spirit. And she's sending out like virtual signed books or something. I don't know. Yeah. It sounds <laughs> really weird and boring. Yeah. I feel like if we did it, it would be fun. <laughs> it might be just because it's like so ridiculous that like. I don't know, but it it was just it really did hurt my brain. Like I'm not just saying that it really did, but no, I also I get think it. it was because I had three cups of coffee, um, which is a lot for me. I don't usually have that much coffee, and it was one of those situations where I was like was so distracted with everything that I had another cup when I was like, oh wait, I already had two cups of like really strong coffee, um, and then it was just too late. Um, so that was also impairing <laughs> my brain function, I think. I have like, it's not a new year's resolution because I've been trying to do this for like two months now, I think, where I really am trying not to drink anything with caffeine after lunch. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's been an experience. Yeah, I don't think I could do that because after lunch is usually, like, right around the time that I need coffee, like, maybe, like, an hour after. Um, but my 2019 so far has been pretty good also. Exciting oh, sorry. Are, are you implying I'm rude for not asking you how your 2019 went? I was actually trying to, like, segue without bringing attention to the fact that you didn't ask me, but 
you did that yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Kat. Yeah. I, I still do not um, accept that as your explanation. I'm pretty sure it was on purpose. It wasn't. You're like, well, my 2019 Thanks for asking. I'm not a passive-aggressive person. If I am going to call you out, I'm just going to sort of say it. That was just like I was just trying to contribute. Gosh, Kat. <laughs> 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 are we in a fight our yes! first fight of 2019 it's the biggest fight of our lives <laughs> um, I, re- I remember Clarabelle. when we had hey, our Clarabelle. first night fight actually it was really great because we like acknowledged it after oh our first fight yeah <laughs> yeah no it was it's you know what's really funny is that like maybe two it was like two weeks before we had that our first fight I had said to you like randomly I was like do you think we're like true friends if we haven't had a fight yet like is there some does that mean like we're not being honest with each other and you're like no we just get along really well and then two weeks later we had a like a really big fight (laughs) it was was really big but it turned out fine I this is gonna sound weird but I like our fights (laughs) because um no, it's because, like, we have fights about, like, touchy things sometimes, but we always talk about it in, like, a really, like, healthy way. Yeah. Um, and I think it makes it, like, our friendship, like, one of the healthiest friendships I've ever had because, like, we just talk about things and we, like, even when it's, like, uncomfortable, like, we just tell each other and I think it's it's really good. More friendships should be like ours. Get on yeah. our level, friendship yeah, noobs. Get on our level. No, you know what I really like that um, you – I think you did it first, but then I started doing it because I liked it so much that you did it, was that there was like a moment where you wanted to bring up something like that had kind of been bothering you for a while. Um, and it wasn't – like it wasn't anything like huge, but it was something that was consistent enough that you were noticing it. And before you brought it up, you – you checked in with me. You were like, Hey, how are you feeling today? Like, how's your mental state? Cause, um, you know, we both have anxiety and mm-hmm. we both have different mental health issues. And I was like, I'm good. And, and you said, you know, there's something I really want to talk about, but, um, it's like, you know, don't worry about it, but like, also it's not like an easy thing. And I'd love to talk about it eventually, but not now if you can't. Mm-hmm. And it felt really good to know that like, even though there was something that was bothering you, like, you still cared so much about like my mental state and like my ability to take in the criticism um, that you like wanted to make sure I was in a good place because like we both know that if something's brought up to you and you're not in a place to receive it well, then like that conversation is not going to be productive. Exactly. So there's like no point in even bringing it up either, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, I think it's important and I think it's something that especially for writers so so many of us deal with um bad mental health mm-hmm. um or like mental health issues rather um and for us to check in with each other just to make sure that we're okay to talk about certain things because there's nothing worse when you're having a bad day to have someone confront you about something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would never want to make my friend's bad day worse. So if I can 
hold, I can hold off. Like, it's not like an immediate fight. It's just something that like you want to talk about. I think that's something more people should try to do. Just check in and make sure, um, and check in all the time, not just when you're going to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, because then every time you're like, how are you feeling today? I'll be like, why? Are you mad at me? <laughs> are we in a fight? <laughs> are we in a fight already? And I'll be like, okay, no. time to not talk about anything. <laughs> no, it's really good, actually. I think because when you're practicing that kind of mindfulness in um, your word choice in your personal relationships, then you're innately doing it in all your relationships in other relationships or other conversations you're having, like, I think especially being aware of the language you use, um, is important when you're talking to a larger audience, like say something annoying happened to you as an author and the person who did it, you know, like technically belongs to a group of people who have less power than mm-hmm. authors do. Um, like say it's like a reviewer, you know, or like a, a, a teen or a reader or something like that. Mm-hmm. You have to be really aware of your language that you're using, because even if the situation, even if you are the victim in the situation, if you're doing something like overgeneralizing it or, or using your platform to send all of your uh, fans after them, then you're not, you're not innocent anymore. You know, mm-hmm. like you're doing something bad. So like mindfulness in every conversation you're having is really important for your personal relationships, but also once you become an author, it's so important. For sure. For sure. And like, I think it's really hard because like you can go from not having to watch your like language almost like, like not that you're like being wild and just saying whatever, but like when you first get on Twitter and you're like a new author, like no one's paying attention to what you're saying. So it, it goes from that to like having everything that you say dissected. Mm-hmm. Um, and like in a way it's like, it's good cause it makes you think about like what you're going to say and the things that you complain about versus not, but you can really hurt, you know, readers and like people who are just trying to support you with your words, even if it's not intentional. So it's good to always have that in mind. Um, I think I've struggled a little bit with that transition because I've been shit posting on Twitter since forever. <laughs> and like now suddenly like my shit post gets like a bunch of views and like retweets. And I have like randos coming into like argue or like talk to me about stuff that like to me, I know it's a joke. And like people who've been following me for a long time know it's a joke, but not everybody knows me. So (laughs) it's pretty funny and like weird to see. Um, and definitely, I mean, I'm still, I'm always going to ship post, but, um, it, it definitely makes me think twice and like not lash out automatically at somebody who will not know that I'm kidding about something. (laughs) Like sometimes just explain to them, like, this is like my brand. Like I'm just kidding about it. <laughs> no, yeah, I think it's important. And also I think it's important for us to realize that um, even if we use Twitter as like our personal venting um, platform before, who we are now is different than who we were before because now people might pay attention to us more or people might care about our opinions about things more And whereas before it was mostly like your friends or your family and your coworkers who kind of like understand your personality and your sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Now it's like fans. And I think like, 
we have to accept that. Like, don't try, don't pretend you're being all humble and be like, Oh, fans me. Oh no. Like, yes, you do have fans. You wrote a book. Okay. You put it out there. People are going to read it and the, and the ideally they'll like it. And then they like you and want to know what you think about things. Or they'll hate me. Or they'll hate you and also want to know what you think about things. (laughs) And then we have to (laughs) rumble. We have to rumble in the park. Yeah. West side story. No, I think it's so, cause like, so like today Ow. or recent, like yesterday, I tweeted a link to a very lovely article about the joy of that TV show tidying up with Marie Kondo. I'm going to scream. <laughs> and literally all my tweet said was it quoted her, um, which pretty much her, her, um, the quote that I decided to use was her just saying like, Oh, you know, I don't, I'm not telling you to eliminate things from your life. Just, um, just look through all of your possessions and see if, if it, you know, is, is important to your current lifestyle and if it sparks joy, like that's all I'm asking you to do, um, is pretty much what the quote is. I'm paraphrasing obviously. Um, and then I said for my personal thing, I said, this is the only conversation I care about when it comes to Marie Kondo. And then I linked the article, which I thought was a very, a very well-written op-ed piece just about, um, you know, how her philosophy isn't necessarily about being clean, but more about being mindful. And, and of course I knew that I was tweeting it out in, within the, at the same time that there's like all this other stuff going on about Marie Kondo. Right. Mm -hmm. So I can't, I could never lie to myself saying like, I didn't mean that. That's not the conversation I want to be a part of. I never said anything about hoarding books or throwing away books or anything. Mm -hmm. Why are you coming at me about that? That would be on me if I claimed that. I knew full well that I was going to get at least one person in my comments being like, don't take away my books. And I did, (laughs) you know, I did. And, and I made the choice still to tweet it. And I, it's just, I had to be, I it's be aware, right? Mm-hmm. Be aware of the context of the world that you're tweeting in and the words you're using. Yeah. And you're always going to get people to misinterpret. You can be as careful as you want. And there's always going to be people who take it the complete wrong way. And that's just something you have to deal with being like a public facing person the same yeah. way that sometimes when you don't want guys that you used to date to message you, they find you because you have public profiles everywhere as an author and they DM you. It's one of those sort of like the negatives to being an author. Yeah. But yeah. Besides that, it's all glamorous. Besides that, it's beautiful and wonderful and amazing. Um, I'm on a yacht right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm in my penthouse apartment with my froofy dog and my... Oh, where's the butler, actually? I ordered that tea like five minutes ago. Peter! (laughs) Peter! Where's my tea? (laughs) Oh, none of that is true. Okay. Um, no, I liter- I'm literally in my overpriced apartment and the heat doesn't work. So <laughs> I have on like so many layers of clothes. It's not even funny. No, um, I'm in a basement apartment. I do have a floofy dog though. You do have a floofy dog. I was projecting. Yeah. Um, okay. I really do actually want to know how your 2019 is going. Oh. We got so off track. <laughs> um, it's going well. Um, you know, There hasn't been, like, a lot of, like, stuff happening except that, like, there's a bunch of bloggers who have been really excited about Ghost Squad, which is really cool because they don't have a cover or anything. 
and I've been included in, like, I've been, I've, um, been compiling a list of all the, like, bloggers and, um, booktubers who have mentioned Ghost Squad, um, because I think it's really important to, like, know who's talking about your book early on and, like, giving you that buzz and, like, yeah. try to show your appreciation somehow, maybe down the line. Um, mm-hmm. Even if it's just by, like, commenting and, like, boosting. I think that's important. Um, yeah. So that's been really nice. And, um, you know, I actually uh, am going on sub with another book very soon Yay. this this week. <laughs> this week. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. I'm, like, super excited about it. And, um, and everything has been good, you know, not perfect. There's been like some mental health stuff, but I'm like working on it and I feel good about the direction the year is going in and I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel exactly the same. I, you know, I think for me with, um, Wicked Fox, it was like, I, I had a hope that some, you know, some bloggers would mention it, but I never, for some reason, thought that it would be mentioned um, on other mediums, like on podcasts or mm-hmm. on um, on BookTube. Yeah. And so the first, I think the first time I ever saw it mentioned on BookTube, you sent me the video. Yeah. And you were like, go to this time point. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And I was so, I just could, didn't cross my mind that you would mean that my book would be there. I thought you meant like one of our friends or something, a book we had just talked about. And then when they mentioned Wicked Fox, I like, I almost like started crying, honestly. Because okay. I, I just, it, I, I had mentally prepared for the hope and the possibility of the written, like written lists, but I had never thought. I never thought I'd watch a person talk, you know, about my book. I and, know it's very yeah. we- it's 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 weird. It's like a surreal feeling, but it's really mm-hmm. cool. It's really it's cool. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um. I actually had um. Uh, a book booktuber mention my book last year on his booktube. I think like in anticipation of like 2019 like books he was most looking forward to and it's like a blogger that I've been following for such a long time it's a Philippe Heath um okay he's the best he's at Philippe Heath with an f on Twitter if you guys want to follow him Mm -hmm. um and that's his YouTube also and he's just so awesome and um the fact that he mentioned my book after like being someone like that I follow and that's followed me for so long and like he was so excited about it. It was just so nice to see. Oh, it made that. me really happy. Um but yeah if you guys mention us in a nice way, obviously <laughs> on like any medium, please tag us because we like bo- boosting people who yeah shout our books out. Yeah. Oh, also one thing that um I never anticipated but that's like one of my uh, newest joys is that um I've I've discovered so many more bloggers of color. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you know, I, um you know smaller bloggers or or newer bloggers or you know just generally um you know uh POC and native 
bloggers who are mentioning our books and they'll tag you or they'll tag me or, or someone will just like tell me about it. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I love this person's, you know, blog. And I hadn't heard about it, but now I get to have this new blog that I can follow and, and read. And, and it's really exciting because, you know, we were readers first and I have always loved blogs and mm-hmm. I was for a very short time in a past life, a blogger and a reviewer. So, um, it's just an exciting thing to discover new people. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. It's really nice. Today we have the amazing Lamar Giles on the show. He's the author of books like Fake ID and more recently the bin that comes out tomorrow and the last last day of summer, which is coming out um, very soon. Uh, Lamar, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. Actually, I'm, I, um, I'm really excited about a book that just came out that you're in that anthology black enough. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's an amazing, amazing book. Yeah. It's it's, it's an amazing book. And it was super fun to write the story. I did something like totally different than what I normally do. I tried to write like a comedy. So I hope I pulled it off. I hope you laugh when you read my story. (laughs) Oh, wow. That must be really hard. I think, I think being funny in books is probably, I think being funny and, and scaring your readers to me is like two of the hardest things to pull off like authentically, but you're really funny online, I feel like. So I feel like <laughs> I you would do a good job um, well, in a story. Uh, I hope I did. I mean, like, like I said, I had a super fun time writing it. I hope people receive it well, but I agree with you. I think horror and comedy are the two hardest things. I, I think it's amazing. Like someone like Jordan Peele, does both, you know? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's funny also that like a lot of comedians go, when they go into acting, they do a lot of sort of like deranged, like scary. (laughs) Um, So that'd be interesting to see like the connection there. But um, I actually heard on, I heard on a panel once um, uh, Ellen O who is one of your co-founders for We Need Diverse Books, Mm -hmm. uh, Lamar. Um, She said that that the reason why you have to, you actually have to have humor and horror be connected because you need to, if you're just like constantly inundating someone with like terrifying things, then they'll just like numb themselves to it and they won't Mm -hmm. receive it. So you have to break up the moments of like fear with something light, like, like humor. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I think Ellen does a good job with that in her books. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, so, Lamar, let's get into your journey. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into writing and when you figured out that you wanted to be an author and everything like that? Sure. Um, I probably started writing when I was about eight years old. And, and I, I was sort of forced into it because um, my class at the time, the teachers made us enter this contest called Young Authors. And I don't know if this is a thing anybody else does or has ever done, but you were, had to write and illustrate your own short book. And so I was already a prolific reader and it never occurred to me that I could try to make up stories. And so this contest was sort of like a spark for me. And so I wrote this story called Giant Dinosaur Inside about a kid who pulls a real dinosaur out of a cereal box. Uh, super weird story, but it ended up winning the contest. And so that was like a really big boost for me because the truth was I wasn't very good at anything else. Like my friends were athletic. They were learning to play basketball and football. I wasn't good at that stuff. I was decent in school. My grades were okay. But that was like the first time someone was like, hey, you're good at something. You're the best. And so I just sort of kept going. And I played around with stories all through my adolescence and high school just for fun. And didn't really realize that people could make money with writing until I read Stephen King's book on writing. 
Um, have y'all read that? Yes. Yeah. Several yeah. times. <laughs> yeah, me too. I probably read it once a year. And, it's and, so good. And, it's so good. And it's him talking about his journey trying to sell short fiction as a teen that made me realize, like, you know, maybe there's a way to make a little money. I didn't think I could make career money. But I was um, in my senior year of college. I knew I had to go out and get a job to support myself, in which I was fine doing. But the job I got, I didn't love. And I still sort of love playing with stories. And so I was maybe 22 years old. And I said, you know what? If I got to go to this job every day and sit in this cubicle and crunch numbers, I at least should put some energy into the writing because my job is hard and publishing is supposed to be hard. So mm-hmm. why not put some time into the hard thing that I actually want to do? And, and that got me going towards the professional track. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, On Writing is definitely a book I think every writer should read. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's incredible. And um, so none of what he went through discouraged you? Because he went through a lot. <laughs> no, no, this is, honestly, this is the way I processed it. Like, you know how he tells that story about he puts that spike on the wall, and every time he mm-hmm. got a rejection, he put it on the mm-hmm. spike until the mm-hmm. spike was so heavy, it tore a hole in the wall? Yep. <laughs> so... The way I read that was, wow, this is one of the most successful writers in the world. So if he got that many rejections, then I'm getting a bunch of rejections. I'm doing what one of the best writers in the world did. And so my rejections felt like almost merit badges. I'm like, I'm going through the levels that I have to go through to get to the professional level. See, kids, this is the kind of attitude you need to have to succeed in the business. <laughs> you got to be able to flip anything and make it work for you. Absolutely. That is such an amazing way to look at it. Um, so uh, when did you first like learn about literary agents and when did you get your first literary agent? How did you go through that whole process? Sure. Um, so I learned about the agent process or literary agents around the age of 24. That's around the time I started selling some short fiction and I was starting to I had written maybe like three novels by then, but I knew they weren't very good. But now I was on like novel four and I felt like I was getting good enough at the long form to try to show people and try to get an agent. I was very wrong, though. I was not that good yet. And I was not good at the process of how you go through getting an agent because I learned what a query letter was, but I wasn't taking like any time to really polish it. It was like I finished the novel. I'm like, this is brilliant. Let me write up some short description today. And send it out mm. tomorrow to 50 agents so they can recognize oh, wow. my <laughs> And so I, I, I was very stubborn in, in my wrongheaded pursuits. And I did that for a few years. And mm. it was 100% rejection. And, and that was fine because, truthfully, those novels weren't that good. But I would say I was maybe 29 years old. And that's when I started writing Fake ID. It was called Whisper Town then. And mm. when I finished it, I honestly had the impression, like, this is something that could work. Like, I feel like this is something sellable. And so because I felt like I'd done a decent enough job on that novel, I'm like, I'm not going to rush the query letter this time. Um, I finished the draft of that book in like, it's probably December or November of 20, 2009. I'm sorry. November of 2009, I finished the draft of what would be fake ID. And because I knew enough about publishing then to know in December people were taking time off, I was like, there's no need to rush. So I'm going to take a whole month to focus on my query letter. And so for the whole month of December, I wrote 14 drafts of a query letter until I felt it was as polished as it could be. And while I was doing that, I was researching very specific agents. And so by January 2nd of 2010, I sent a query letter to 10 very specific agents. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I didn't know what would happen, but my thinking was at least I'm going about the process correctly now. We'll see what it is. And within a day, I got a response. And I was so used to seeing rejections that when I read the response, I initially read a rejection. It actually was a letter, an email asking me to send in the manuscript. Hmm. By the end of the week, three more agents had asked to see the manuscript. And by the end of January, seven out of ten had asked for a full. Oh, wow. But I always, I always say this, by March, all of them had rejected me. But here's wow. the thing. This was, you know, I try, to, I try to look at everything as a learning experience. I was like, mm-hmm. my letter is fine. There's something in the manuscript that's throwing people off. And I happened to get a rejection from Janet Reed. You know, the query shark? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And she gave me one of those rejections where they give you feedback. And, you know, she was cursing at me in the feedback. Like, what the, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, but it, 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 it was, she had a point. It was one character in particular where I was like, you know what? I see where she's going. I could probably fix this in about three weeks. And so I did another rewrite on the novel to incorporate her feedback. Soon as I was happy with it, I went out to five more agents because I'm like, okay, I know my letter's good. I made this tweak. Let me test the waters with these five agents who I would love to work with and see what happens. If it comes back again, I need to do another revision. Well, I sent it to those five agents. Three of them offered to represent me. And that's when I signed with my agent, Jamie, at the Andrea Brown Agency. She's still my agent today. That's amazing. I love that. So how many books do you think that you wrote before you know, uh, you, you ultimately hooked up with Jamie. Six. Six books. Six. I yeah. started my first novel when I was 14, but here's the thing. I took six years to finish that because, you know, I was 14. I, I, I didn't yeah. really know what I was doing and I was sort of just playing around here and there. And then once I finished that first one, so six years was that I was 20. And so from 20 to 28, I wrote five more. And wow. then it was fake ID, I guess was number seven. then, And that's the one that went. That's so great. Do you remember what any of the older novels were about? Were any of them um, mm-hmm. sort of <laughs> ridiculous? Or <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I guess I'm biased. I don't think any of them were ridiculous. I just think I think I was trying to do a whole lot of things that I wasn't mature enough to do. It was mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, a lot of it was imitation. Um, I was imitating yeah. um, King, for one, um, yeah. Tanata Redu, Stephen Barnes, um, F. Paul Wilson, because I, I started out wanting to be a horror writer. And okay. my first short story sales were horror stories. And so I was really operating in that field for a long time before I got into mystery thriller and young adult. Is, are um, there any books um, that you wrote before uh, Fake ID where you've taken it off the shelf since and you've like reworked it for a story that we'd recognize now? Um, OK, so not anything you'd recognize now, but I actually took one of those novels and reworked it as a comic book proposal. And so. I'm sort of playing with the idea of seeing how I might do a creator-owned comic. I just mm-hmm. haven't had time to really explore it because I've been super busy with the novel work. Yeah. But I like that, though, because I, I think that sometimes when we – I sometimes I feel like I talk to people and it's so hard for them to let go of their book because they think that that's the end. Mm-hmm. But it's nice that you can take it out and you can reimagine it and you can remake the, it. And I love that you actually are even – working on remaking it in a completely different medium. I think that's really cool. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm a big comic book guy from my entire life. And so that's ultimately a format I want to break into. That's awesome. Um, so once you got your agent for, um, for uh, fake ID, what was the process like for submission? 
Okay, so this was what, 2010? Um, mm. Signed with Jamie, it was a, a, around early summer. And so she had some notes. And so we did another revision. And we went out in September. And we went out to everybody in New York, all the major houses. Um, and pretty much it was nine months of rejection. And it was really frustrating because none of the rejections were like, we don't like your writing. We don't like this story. And I've listened to the podcast. I know you've heard this part before. <laughs> they, they already had someone who did what I did, <laughs> um, which was, you know, code for they had their black guy or they the had their black, black guy. Mm-hmm. And, um, Absolutely. and it, it, it was so infuriating that I let Jamie still take it out. But I was sort of to the point where I'm not going to allow a stranger in New York to dictate my fate. And so mm-hmm. I ended up self-publishing some mm-hmm. of the earlier work I'd done, not novels, but I'd done a novella. I'd done a bunch of short stories. And so I published a novella and a short story collection on my own. These were horror stories and sort of just started pushing them on my own on like the digital platforms. And I did OK there. I did enough to get some recognition from some really cool people. And it was in May of 2011 I was on a train going to D.C. to promote my self-published work at a conference when I got the call that Phoebe at HarperCollins wanted to buy what would become Fake ID. That's amazing. So what was that feeling like? Tell me everything because, you know, I'm, I'm um, about to go on subs very soon and I need positive vibes and energy in my life. <laughs> Well, I mean, the feeling to get that call, it was amazing. But I think at that point, I was also a little jaded because mm-hmm. I was I was really I guess my feelings were hurt that so many people were passing me up for reasons that had nothing to do with my actual writing. And so mm-hmm. it was cool that I heard from Phoebe and she wanted to buy the book. And once I got to meet Phoebe, I fell in love with her. And I, I want to get back to Phoebe later because I think she's a name that doesn't get mentioned quite enough for what she's done in terms of diversity. Absolutely. But, um, I, I just I felt a little numb when the call mm-hmm. came because I honestly and I don't mean to sound arrogant. I'm like, I should have been sold this book. Oh, no, that doesn't sound arrogant to me at all. It yeah. doesn't. I get that 100 percent. So it, it, it was mixed feelings. But I mean, ultimately happy. And, um, you know, I love Phoebe. But it took a long time to publish the book from that point. And that's just when I learned I started to learn a whole lot about the inner workings of publishing because that mm-hmm. was 2011. Fake ID didn't publish until January of 2014, so it was 27 months. Hmm. Patience is uh, needed <laughs> yeah. to be in publishing, for it sure. And, and, and here's the beauty of it. I had a day job, so it wasn't like I was stressing it. And I think that's important. Like When you're very early in, in, in your publishing career, it's so good to have something outside of publishing that sustains mm-hmm. you. Because I'm just going to be honest, that, that starving artist stuff doesn't feel sexy to me. Um, I wanted I wanted to have a rest, steady paycheck while I'm waiting for the art stuff to pop, you know? Yeah, I understand that. It it makes me, like, I teared up a little bit. It makes me sad because, like, you should experience the joy of, like, getting the editor phone call. But because all these people were passing up your book for, you know, let's call a spade a spade. A lot of it was racist reasons. Mm-hmm. Um you didn't get to fully have that experience of like happiness, you know, and that sucks how much stuff is taken from us in this mm-hmm. experience. How many things we have to worry about that our white colleagues don't have to worry about. Um, and that's, it's something that's really important to, to talk about though. Um, and I'm excited to hear more about Phoebe also, because, you know, we need people who are on our side and who are doing the work. 
I, and I, I, I apologize for if I made you sad at all too, because but I understand, oh, no, I understand no. where you're coming from. <laughs> it's like it's like when you're a when you're a person of color or you're just a marginalized person in this business. I think there is a hardening of your heart the deeper yeah. you get into this business because you recognize that there are so many things that are like there's a roadblock there. Like when yeah. it comes to the marketing support, when it comes to mm-hmm. you know even just going getting a vet scheduled for your book, it's like. You know, I, I travel all over the country, speak, do signings, conferences and stuff, and I've never been on an official tour. Like I got had to arrange most of that stuff myself up until a couple of years ago. And like people don't understand. That's like the grind for us. Yep. Yep. And no, you don't don't apologize because it's more so that I've seen it happen so many times and it's so unfair and it just <laughs> makes me angry. You know, um, I remember. Kat, when we first saw, like, anything, like, really, like, the ugly side of publishing, it was a friend of ours, we were in a group chat, and we found out that, like, her book had, um, you know, an Asian-American main character, I don't, I'm going to be a little bit vague, and (laughs) her publisher put a white girl on the cover. Yeah. Even though Mm -hmm. her character, the blurb, everything was very specific to this one Asian American character and we were we were so upset because yeah. we we had never seen that side of things and like that was a couple years ago now so we've heard a lot of stories since then had things happened to us since then but um I I'm also think that, yeah I think yeah, it's also different um because we do, I think that the community is really great in that when someone new comes in, a new um, author of color comes in, uh, the community does try to take them in and advise them and say, listen, you know, here's the reality of how things are. And like, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want you to be sad. Like you were saying, you don't want us to be sad, but it's it's true and we should know. But there is a difference between being told it happens and seeing it happen over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And and feel and the futility of feeling powerless. Like mm-hmm. this is happening. I literally can't do anything to change it. And I know that my turn is coming up and I don't want to feel that pain, but I know it's coming for me. It it really stinks to be a person of color um going through that and and knowing that um, you're, you've made the active choice that in order to pursue your dream, you're also pursuing future pain. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I mean, also the community has been a, an amazing yeah. uh, part of, of the journey as well. So that's Big a time. nice positive. Yeah. yeah, yeah um, my sure. best friends are in publishing, you know, um, the people I talk to every day, I've heard y'all mention Danielle a couple times on the podcast. Um, <laughs> that's my buddy. Yeah. I talk to her often. Um, Ellen, of course, Meg Medina. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meg Medina is one of my favorite people in the world, and she's always giving me good advice. And so it's important to have those friends who understand the grind of this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And well, you and your friends, like, I'm so funny that you're like, my friends, and these are people who are like heroes to a lot of people. <laughs> um, it, you included, like, you and your friends at, created a whole organization. Yeah, um, let's talk about In that. order to address this, <laughs> um, we briefly uh, talked about We Need Diverse Books, but it, like, it's honestly, when I was first coming up into publishing, when I, like, when I decided to officially pursue publishing, it was 20. 13. And then We Need Diverse Books came out officially in 2014, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like very soon after. And so I don't think I had, I don't think I had to come into this industry and feel alone for that long because We Need Diverse Books existed. But you Mm -hmm. obviously, you guys felt we're in a different era, I would even say. 
um, yeah, we, um, we need diverse books. So, you know, obviously, you know, that's like Ellen O's brainchild. And it started with a conversation between me, her and Meg Medina. I mean, like I remember this was probably March of 2014. We were in northern Virginia eating lunch together. And Ellen was like, you know, basically we were saying like all the same stuff we just talked about, the stuff we'd gone through mm-hmm. um, and talked about how growing up, we just wish we could have seen people like ourselves in books. And Ellen's just like, I got this idea. She didn't tell us exactly what it was yet. But she like, let me think on it, get back to you. And then a couple weeks later, she's like, you know, we should just do a hashtag and just see if anybody else has these stories. And then you know what happened after that. But it's just amazing that she had the wherewithal to think like, hey, let's find, let's let's get everybody who's gone through this to try to tell their story online. And that way publishing can't ignore us anymore. And Ellen was correct. Um, it was amazing what happened with the We Need Diverse books. Um, hashtag then with BookCon shortly after, and then we formed a nonprofit. And now it's like almost five years later. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it's made such a big difference. I, coming as two like authors who have benefited from that yeah. community, like we are living proof of it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm glad. I'm so glad it's been helpful for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, Spin. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to read the opening and I was already sweating. <laughs> um, this book, it looks really amazing. Um, I was really upset that somebody hadn't told me about it earlier because it has two of my favorite things, which are hip hop and murder. So tell us <laughs> a little bit more about this book, how you got the idea for it. I want to know everything. All right, so Spin is a mystery thriller about two enemies, Kai and Fuse, who are tasked with solving the tragic murder of their mutual friend, rising superstar DJ Parsec. And they're forced to work together by an unstable faction of her online fandom. And so they have to put their differences aside to find her killer. And um, the story came to me after I read an article. It was probably in Complex Magazine, maybe like four or five years ago. And it was talking about online fandoms. So, you know, it's talking about like, Taylor Swift Swifties and um, Rihanna's Navy, Drake's Team Drizzy, you know? Mm-hmm. And it gets to this part about the Beehive and mm-hmm. arguably the most powerful fandom, you know? <laughs> I think so, probably, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's this quote that, that never left me, and it goes, if you don't like Beyonce's latest single, the Beehive will annihilate you. <laughs> and being a guy who comes from a horror background, I write mystery thrillers, it just always felt super compelling to me that a, a fandom could have so much power. And we saw this happen, like with the Lemonade video, with Becky with the good hair, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where where they t- where the fandom identified someone they thought to be that person, and that person had to go and hide it. Um, I felt that was something really, really rich to play with, and Spin sort of spun out of that. I love that even more now that you're talking about it. That just, it's so interesting to me. And I also think it's really cool that like we're getting all of these different books that have music in them now from black authors, like Angie's book um, Mm -hmm. on the come up and um, let me hear a rhyme. um, Tiffany Jackson's book also, um, which is really cool to see. I'm very, very excited about these um, musical YA books. Um, 
Oh yeah, yeah. I'm looking for it. I mean, I, I actually have arcs of on the come up and Tiffany's book. Let me hear a rhyme. So, uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's like, 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 it's a lot of good music books coming out, y'all. And I'm happy too. I love hip hop, so I'm glad we're getting to see that in our fiction. I am very excited too. I am also a huge hip hop head. I'm from the Bronx, so it's like my life. I'm obsessed with it. Uh-huh. I want to ask you a really important question. How do you feel about Busta Rhymes? Oh, Busta is great. Um, I was playing the Touch It remix the other day. Um, that's one of my favorites. He, I think he's probably one of the most animated characters we've ever seen in hip hop. Um, is, is, did he do anything new recently? Is there a reason you brought him up? Or you, you no, just... I just like to ask anyone who says they like hip hop about Busta Rhymes, so I know if I have to end the interview <laughs> oh, or not. Busta's great. Busta's great. I mean, so no, no, we're still friends. Okay, cool, good, perfect. <laughs> um, so you you actually have a middle grade coming out as well in mm-hmm. April, correct? April second. Yes. yes. Um, and it's called the last last day of summer. That's um, correct. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, The Last Last Day of Summer is a super weird adventure novel about two cousins who are the supernatural sleuths in their town. It's a weird town. And on the last day of summer, they accidentally freeze time and they have to work with a bunch of strange characters in order to fix it before time is frozen forever. Oh, that sounds so cool. And it it, um, says The Hardy Boys meets The Phantom Tollbooth, which sounds incredible. That's so cool. I love The Phantom Tollbooth. Oh, yeah. The Phantom Tollbooth is one of my favorites. And and the inspiration for a lot of the wordplay in the book, I play with a lot of time puns and idioms, and that's Mm. all inspired by The Phantom Tollbooth. That's really exciting. It sounds so good. This is with Kwame Alexander's imprint, right? Yeah, yeah. We're um, the first... This is the first set of books from the Versify imprint. So um, Kwame reached out to me a couple years ago and gave me an opportunity to just cut loose. And so I had a lot of fun with it. That's, That's so, so exciting. Cool. Yeah, that is really exciting. We Everyone go out and pre-order everything from Versify because we have to make sure nothing flops and everything does well so Kwame <laughs> can keep putting good books out there. Um, awesome that you are all doing so many great things. And, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't, like, on the on behalf of all authors of color and readers of color to say thank you to you and everyone who's doing yes. this work and who started Reading Diverse Books and who continues to help pave the way for for the rest of us. It's really important and I really, really super appreciate it. You're going to yeah. make me get misty-eyed. There's no thanks necessary. There's no thanks necessary. But hold on. Can I take a moment to talk about Phoebe Yeh? Because I think oh, it's yeah, relevant absolutely. now. Absolutely. Yeah, because let's talk about Phoebe. Phoebe is an editor. She's actually co-publisher at the Crown Imprint over at Penguin Random House now. Okay. But she was um, an editor at HarperCollins when she signed me. But check this out. Phoebe used to edit Walter Dean Myers, and she signed me, Ellen O., and Kwame. Wow. So, I mean, I just want you to think about that. And now that she's over at Crown, you know, she, she's got Nick Stone, um, Dear Martin, um, I went out. Um, Phoebe's always worked hard to cultivate a diverse roster. And like I said, I think her name is not said enough for that work because I think it was work she was doing when a lot of people weren't thinking about it. Yeah, that's so important. That's so many big names, too. And it's always hard being one of the first, you know, like being the only one in the room. We talk about that a lot too, I think. Like you feel like, am I going, am I going crazy or are these people actually being like 
like racist or microaggressive because mm-hmm. there's no one to for you to look to and be like, yes, confirm. I am yeah. I'm taking it the right way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm sure she went through a lot and she still accomplished so much. And, you know, I I, I say I might not know Ellen or Kwame if it wasn't for Phoebe. So that's yeah. something to really consider. Like, I think about it a lot. Oh, yeah. So you've talked a couple times about, like, your friendships in publishing. Can you tell us, for people who are, like, newer, we have a lot of listeners that are, you know, querying authors or just getting into the community. Um, can you just sort of say, like, your why you think, like, having authors as friends or writers as friends is important to you being part of the community, why you think it's important for authors to do that? Um, first camaraderie, because this is a hard business. So it's nice to have friends who actually understand it. I, I, I'm married. I have my wife and I can talk to her about publishing, but she doesn't always understand the stuff we go through the same way. I may not get everything that happens at her job. So it's nice to have a crew who goes through these things. And also there's information sharing because there's so much unknown about publishing, particularly when you get into the business side, your contracts. And I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I didn't realize that there were people who sometimes sign contracts where they get their payments in thirds or fourths. Mm. And so I've never signed a contract like that. All of my contracts, I get paid when I sign and I get the second half when my book goes to copy edits. And I I met people who were like, they didn't realize that was even a possibility. So they're getting payments where they're getting a a third on signing, a third on acceptance and a third on publishing. And then there's people who were getting a third, I mean, a fourth on signing, a fourth on acceptance, a fourth on the hardcover publication and a fourth on the paperback. Do you know how long it would take you to get paid that way? Oh my yeah. God, you gotta wait for paperback? I would, that is oh my gosh. bananas. <laughs> yeah. At least, I, I mean, at least I, I've heard that. I've heard that, that, that there were contracts like that. I can't imagine mm-hmm. it. I don't know who would sign something like that now. But yeah. my point is, like, a bunch of people, when we talked about it, like the people who were signing for Thursdays didn't know you could sign for halves and vice versa. Um, that's the sort of thing that you get when you talk to people who are going through what you're going through. It's so important. And it's really important to talk because there are sketchy agents and people out there and you need to be able to have friends who can tell you when these things are going on as well. And also, I think like, you know, a lot of the public information is like telling people to persevere and to like get through like the waiting and the this and like listen to your agent and listen to your editor. But then um, it's very possible that if you're isolated, then you'll be in like a bad relationship with someone who has more power than you. And you'll be like, well, I was told to be patient. But if you had friends, you could tell them and they could be like, no, no, that's a different category. Yep, (laughs) yep, yep, yep. There's always a difference. Um, I, I actually always say this, but I, I was in a bad agent um, relationship, and the reason why I got out of it was because Adam Silvera sort of like took me aside and was like, "But are you really happy?" And I was like, <laughs> "I'm not." <laughs> that's that's real though. I mean, that's real. Like you sometimes need your friends in the industry to say to you, like, "You don't have to put up with this bad situation," mm-hmm. and that's the benefit of it too. Like I said. Um, my, my wife is super supportive. Um, she's always had my back, but she doesn't understand our business the way some of my friends do. And, and it's just useful to be able to talk the, the nuts and bolts. So everyone who is on this podcast, 
we ask them to share either their most embarrassing publishing moment (laughs) or something that you wish you'd known before you started. You can pick one or the other. You can do both. It's your call. I'll do both. I'll talk about... Yay, that's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) So... The embarrassing moment was back in 2004, and this was when I'd gotten my first significant short story sale. This is when I was really intending to be an adult horror writer, and I sold a short story to this anthology called Dark Dreams, which was the first anthology of horror stories from all African-American writers. And so we got invited to this conference in Maryland to promote it. It's a big horror conference, and so I'm in the room with a bunch of writers I've read for many years. I always admire um, people like Brian Keene and F. Paul Wilson. Um, and we're all at this table. I just, I just got to the hotel. I just got off the road from driving four hours. I walk in the hotel restaurant. All these people I know from their books are sitting around the table along with the editor of the anthology, Brandon. And so he invites me over. I'm sitting down right next to Brian Keene, whose book, The Rising, I loved so much. And they have a copy of the anthology. And someone at the table is like, Lamar, have you signed an autograph yet? And I'm like, no. And they're like, can I get your first autograph? I want you to sign my book. And I'm just blown away. I didn't even think about the possibility of signing something. And so he hands me the book, and it's an anthology. So there's 12 stories from 12 different people in it or whatever. And I I go to the title page. I don't know if this is a taboo now, but as I go to the title page, I sign really big, and everyone's looking at me weird, and I don't know why. And Brian King, who's like a superstar, he's like, hey, man, um, you know, with anthologies, you typically sign on the title page of your story, not the front of the book, because oh, it's not your book. And um, oh. I'm like, and I, I just feel mortified. But then he's like, but hey, I got some calamari here if you want a piece. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it just like diffused the whole thing. And, and, and they all made me feel super welcome, even though I felt horrible. And that was probably to this day, I will not sign an anthology on the title page unless the editor or somebody from the publishing company says they want it that way because of that. That is so funny. Yeah. It's so funny. And we we freak out about those moments, too, as if they're, like, the biggest deal in the world. Because to us, they are. But <laughs> it, it's just funny when you look back on it. I love that. <laughs> and then as far as something that I wish I'd known, and I learned it fairly quickly, but if you're new to this business, and you know you want certain things to happen for your book. Like if you want, small example, you want bookmarks or you want something that some kind of swag that you can hand out or you want to do in-store signings. If your publisher isn't going to help you, you got to be prepared to do it yourself. Um, you can ask like, hey, can you help me just to see what they say? If the answer is no, then make sure you have a plan to execute on your own because no one cares more about your career than you. Yeah. And that's pretty much what I've had to do the entire time I've been around. Um, I'll ask a lot of times I don't get the things I want and then I go do them myself. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's very true. <laughs> that's, that's how it is. And you know, I'm a big advocate of that. That's why I know how to do all of these like graphic design things, marketing things. I was just like, I know what it's like. And I'm probably going to have to do a lot of things myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to teach myself how to do all these things, but it's paying off now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I taught myself Photoshop so I can make mm-hmm. my own swag for every book, all sorts of branded things. And so important. it's a useful skill to have. You know? So nice. if, if I, I don't want to rely on anybody to do stuff for me. It's nice if they will, but most often I found they won't. 
Yep. Is there like one piece of swag where you tend to be like, well, for every book, you'll always do it because you just either you like doing it or like you just think the payoff is really good. I always do bookmarks. Um, okay. First of all, I like doing them. Uh, I, I'm, I'm good enough with the tools to make them look good. Mm-hmm. And I, this is the reason more than anything, because I often go to stuff and say books are for sale. But maybe there are kids there who can't afford to get the book for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. They'll sometimes be like, well, can I still have a bookmark? And of course they can. And so I like to just have that stuff ready. So like, if, I mean, I'm like, if you can't afford my book, I don't want you to walk out of here empty handed. Yeah. And so that's that's why I keep those on hand, because they're a very easy thing to give to a child and make them feel good about coming to see you if they couldn't support you by buying the book. I love that. That's amazing. And they're, they're the whole point, too. Like yep. the kids are the whole point of why we do this anyway. So why are we catering to like adults most of the time? <laughs> and it, it always breaks my heart when the kid asks, like he thinks I'm going to say no. Or she thinks I'm going to say no. Because I'm like, of course, you can you can have a bookmark. No, no problem. You can take two if you got a sibling. Give them, you know. Yeah. I no, and, and also, like, sometimes, like, when I was, like, younger and I was just, like, a fan of people, like, the idea that you, you'd you see, like, your hero author or someone that you're just a fan of and you'd be like, I really want you to sign something, but I have nothing for you to sign. And then you're like, I'll never get this chance again. Yeah. But, you know, the whole bookmark thing solves that. So that's so Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. Lamar, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Can you tell uh, listeners where they can follow you online? Sure. Um, my website is my name, LamarGiles.com. If you go there, you can see all the social media badges. There's Twitter, um, at LRGiles. Um, Facebook, I'm Lamar Giles Writer. And Instagram, I'm Lamar Giles. Yay. It was amazing to talk to you. Um, thanks again for being on the podcast. I know it's going to be a really good episode for people. It's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. So thanks oh, yeah. so much. Oh, no, thank you for having me. It's a, I had a good time and I love listening to what I've heard so far. Oh, thank you. Thank Yay. you for listening. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Happy. <laughs>